Would you turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the very last chapter in the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. If you have your Nova Community Church app, you can turn there and take a look at the sermon notes that are on your app. We are beginning a new series entitled A New Hope, and we will be exploring a new hope uh, that the followers of Jesus Christ had after the resurrection. And, and the new hope that we have as ones who worship the risen Lord. I think a great question to ask at the very beginning of this series as we sort of look at the end of the Gospel of John is, is why did they need a new hope? Why is it that as John ends up his Gospel that that there is this last account of encountering the resurrected Jesus. And as we look back during that time, and as much history as we can understand and know during that time, we know that there was an oppressive political and religious system that was going on there. In the religious systems, there was a rules-based authoritarian um, uh, 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 religion that was designed to create sort of an insider and outsider mentality. And there was, for others, there was a worship of multiple gods with no hope of the afterlife at all. Then there was economic constraints. There were the haves and the have-nots, and people were moving into the cities for a hopeful economy. And yet there were people just stuck in urban poverty at the time. And the poor and the sick and the disabled and the abandoned had no way to work and therefore provide for themselves. There was a racial injustice, probably more, we would think, more of a cultural injustice back then. There was a Greco-Roman power base and the, a Roman occupation that, that people just felt held down by. And so that was in their day why they needed a new hope. But what about in our day? What about today in our, in our day? Are people today looking for a new hope? Well, I, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I read the news and I, and I watch uh, TV and I, and I watch national news broadcasts and, I, and I, I look at that and I think, well, I see people looking for a new hope. There are people gathering for protests in March, marches in their in their looking for fairness, and they're looking for justice. They're looking for safety. They're looking for equality and equal opportunities, and they're searching for a new hope by perhaps gathering together and having our collective voices heard. I think there are people who are looking for a new hope by thinking, maybe I can live longer. Maybe I can be more, maybe I can be immortal. And so I'm searching for that fountain of youth and I'm, I'm looking for fitness and nutrition, cryotherapy and medical technology to, to help me find that fountain of youth. I think people are looking for a new hope today through politics and, and we're, we're searching, we're hoping for change through transformational leadership and, and policy and they're just searching for hope today. I think economically, I think people are looking to invest wisely, and there's all sorts of other opportunities economically that we can find. And then still, I think there's others who, I don't know if they've given up on a new hope. 
But I think there are those who are thinking in their life, there is no hope. And so for today, I'm just going to live my life to the fullest. And so people are thinking about exotic travel and just trying to experience as much as they can. And not just travel, but, but um, sort of um, extreme adventure, to try to experience as much adventure and, and, and risk in life because there is no hope, really. And so why don't I just sort of try to stimulate myself as much as I can through exotic travel and, and, and extreme adventure. So forget the American dream. Forget delayed gratification because you only live once, right? And that's what we have today. And I think the world has experienced that through the ages. What do we find in our text today in John chapter 21? Starting in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into a boat, but that night they cut nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the other side of the boat, you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he grabbed his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in a boat towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is God's word. When you read through the book of John, you, you read especially towards the end, you read stories like this, and, and um, I think one of the great questions to ask is, why is this account in the Bible? Why is this last sort of scene as John closes up the gospel, why is it there? Well, the simple answer is, is because it happened. 
Um, it was, it's, it's written there because it happened. These are eyewitness accounts. This is eyewitness testimony. It's a perfect account, this one here, to demonstrate why the Gospels are not fairy tales and, and not legends. Because in, in verse 7 in our text, you see Peter and John says to him, it's the Lord. And Peter says, it's the Lord. And so what does he do? He says, I'm going to get to him as fast as anyone else does. And so he puts on his coat and he jumps in the water. Now, isn't that a strange thing when you, when you think about it? When, you, when you're, you're thinking, I'm going to go to the beach and I'm going to go swimming, you don't start to put on your down jacket and your, uh, you know, you don't start to do that and say, I'm going to go body surfing now. No, you get in your swimsuit, right? Or you get in your wetsuit, something that you're going to be able to move through the water easier through. So why would, it, why would it be like this? It's because it's an eyewitness account. In verse 8, you, you, you see that, there's, a, there's a, specific, a specific distance that they are from shore. It says about 100 yards. Why was he so exact? Because it happened. How about verse 11? How many fish did they catch? Not about 150, not just a big haul of fish. It was how much? 153. Someone went out and counted those large fish. Now, why would you go into such detail on something like this? It's because John was there. What we have here is a memory of an eyewitness account. When you see something like this, you see Peter putting on his coat and then jumping in the water, when you, when you kind of see that you're a, about 100 yards from shore and that you haul in uh, 153 large fish after catching nothing all night, it's a memory of an eyewitness account, and it was a significant memory of an eyewitness account. Why is this account in the Bible? Because it happened. The second reason why, it's simply because it teaches us. It teaches us something. The author, John, had many incidents that happened that he could have written about, but he chose the ones written in this gospel. Why did he do that? Because in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, these accounts are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why these are written, because it happened and because it teaches us something. And so let's step back and take a look and say, what does this account teach us? And in and we can see this as the central message of the gospel. If you were to write the last words in a, in, a, in a wonderful gospel account like John, what would your last words be? This is the central message of the gospel. It's the hope of the gospel. I, I was thinking about this. Have you ever gone on vacation? And have you ever had someone house sit for you? Someone staying in your apartment or your home or your condo, and, and, and they're going to take care of things. And so... Um, you ever go on vacation, have someone house sit, and they're going to take care of your plants, or your, or your grass, your, your lawn, or your cat, or your dog, or your hamster, or your lizard, or your snake, or, or whatever it is. They're going to take care of things, and, and, and uh, you leave tons of notes for them. And, and, and we do that. I mean, we have tons of notes, and don't forget this. We're putting post-its all over the place. You know, don't forget to turn off of this, this light, and don't forget to lock this door. Don't forget to water these plants. These are twice a week, and these are every day, and, you know, these don't water at all, and, you know, all that sort of a thing. You're leaving all these instructions and these messages for people. 
When the mail comes, put it in this box. When that big pile of Amazon Prime packages show up every day, you know, you know where to put those things. And so you're leaving tons of notes, and that's what John's doing here. He, he's, he's leaving messages here. And what I see here, there are no less than three messages that John wants us to know as he closes out his gospel here. They are central to the gospel. The new hope for people in ancient days and the new hope for us today that we need hope so desperately. The central message of the gospel, number one is this, it's the fellowship of a new hope. The fellowship of a new hope. The gospel creates an amazing opportunity among people who believe. And I think we often forget it, especially on a Sunday morning when we gather like this together. Sometimes we take this for granted, the gathering. It's easy to miss. But I think people all over, not just here, but people all over are hungry for this. Verse 2 in our text says, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Period. Full stop. Not so often you read in the Gospels. They were together and they did this, or they said this, or they heard this, or they learned this. It's just they were together, period. Full stop, full sentence. They were just together. Why is this significant? Why were they together? You see, their master had been killed. They were, he was killed by people who would kill anybody who followed him still. It was dangerous to be together. And what held them together was the fact that they had a resurrected Savior. I, how many of you have Christian friends and maybe you see each other on Sunday, you're out there on the plaza and you're talking about this or that, and then someone says, you know what, we should get together. But you never do anything about it. You never do anything about it. We should, we should get together. But you're never together. And notice, I think here in verse 3, it's work to get together sometimes, especially in our world where there's such busyness and, and, um, and time constraints. Take a look at, at verse 3. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Did Peter say this? Did he, did he say, it with all of those people after that full stop in verse 2, did he say, hey, let's go fishing? No. He said, I'm going to go fishing. His friends didn't say, what a coincidence. We wanted to go fishing too. Didn't happen. What I see here is not all of them were vocational fisher people here. I don't think they wanted to go fishing. Not all of them. Peter did. I think they wanted to be together. If you're going to be together with other Christians, you're probably going to do things that, or be, go to places that you probably wouldn't choose if it was your choice otherwise. It's funny, I'll, this will happen to me quite often, actually. And it's, I was thinking about this. I'll, I'll talk to somebody, we're emailing or texting or calling, and I'll say, hey, let's get together. They'll say, okay, I'll say, I'll meet you at the Starbucks, and I'll tell them where it's at. 
And they'll say, okay, good. And we'll get there, we'll meet, and we get in line, and, and I get my um, grande, roomy Americano. A um, lot of room. Uh, people call it a ghetto latte. It's what it is. And so it's, it's inexpensive. It tastes good. I put a lot of cream and stevia in there. It's great. Um, so I, I, I order that. I know exactly what I want. I want a grande, roomy Americano. And then I'll say, hey, I got a Starbucks card. Um, it's on me. And then they get up there and they just go, I'll, I'll just have a bottle of water. And I think, if you didn't like coffee, why don't you tell me not, we're not going to meet at Starbucks? I'd want to meet at Starbucks. You know, we could have been anywhere. So, this has happened to me too. This is very strange. I'll say, hey, let's get, let's get together for lunch. And they'll say, okay, good. And we'll meet at the Thai place and, and we'll go to the Thai place. And, and the waiter comes, brings us a menu. We look at it, I know what I want, and the waiter comes, I'll take your order, and I'll say, go ahead, and order, and, and they'll say, oh, I'll, I'll just have water. <laughs> and so I order, and then after the waiter goes away, I say, what, I'll, I'll buy, it's okay, you know? And they'll say, oh, I'm fasting. This has happened to me, and I, and I think, I said lunch, you know? That means we eat together. It's so strange to me. <laughs> when you hang out with other people, sometimes you're going to choose something that they really don't want to do, but they just want to be together. And sometimes I have to say, oh, I'll go with you to that place that I don't really like. But we're just going to be together. It's okay. You've got to work to be together is the point. And sometimes you have to pay the price to be together, but it's going to be worth it because you're going to be together. What I read here is that John, John is naming people and two others that he doesn't name here in the text to cover all the people who have seen the risen Christ. And they have this shared experience of seeing the risen Christ and as diverse and as different as they were, they just wanted to be together. And the, and the question is this, how real is the risen Christ to you and regardless if you're an introvert or an extrovert, if you've experienced Jesus in a real and personal way, you will want to be around others who have experienced Jesus in a real and personal way. Whether you like the same sort of food or you're doing the same, you like to do the same sort of thing or not. And sometimes we just need to be together even with someone that we don't have much in common with. C.S. Lewis, he, he writes this in, in his book, The Four Loves. He says that the addition of new friendships to a small circle of friends multiplies rather than divides the richness of our friendship. Take a look at this. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole person out. Now that Charles, and that's Charles Williams, is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's Tolkien's reaction to his jokes. Far from having more of Ronald now that Charles is gone, I have less of Ronald. Thus true friendship exhibits a glorious resemblance to heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition which each has of God. For every soul seeing him in their own way communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That is why the seraphim and Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. 
That's so interesting that he, that, he said, that he writes this. You see, the disciple Thomas knows more about Jesus because of his friendship with Mary. And Peter has a wider grasp of Jesus because he's been fishing with Nathaniel. And John loves Jesus more because of what James has shared with him. And this happens. And what is, what is multidimensional about our diverse fellowship is that the friendship that we have with one another helps us know the heights and the depths of God. Let me, let me just give you an example of this. If you've ever been on a missions trip, and you, you even going to Mexico to visit uh, just across the border, and you're visiting the orphanage where we give gifts to the people, to the staff and the kids of Kalina de Luz, we don't have much in common with them. They live in another country. They live communally in this orphanage. The staff are there working with the kids. They eat different foods on a regular basis than, than we do. Their social economic level is different than ours. But if you've ever been there and spent the day there, playing with the kids, talking with the staff, getting the tour by the director, Jim Drake, over there, you go there, and at the end of the day, when you drive back home, somehow inside, you feel so much richer. And you think, and they say, thank you so much for bringing us all these presents. Thank you for coming to visit us. And you drive away, and you're waving to the kids, and kind of teary-eyed, and, and you some, you're driving away, and you're thinking, they think that we brought them something, but I'm leaving with so much more. That's that same deal. You see, the more multi-generational we are, the more multi-ethnic and multicultural we are as Nova, and the more intergenerational we become in our interactions and intercultural and, and um, inter-ethnic, I guess, getting to know one another, well, the more of that interaction that we have with the different differences that we are, the richer our fellowship will be, but get this, the richer our relationship with God will become. And so next Sunday, we're gonna be building the frame of this house, and there's different, there's kids hammering, trying to hammer nails, and there's, there's people cutting wood and all of that. You wouldn't generally hang out with all those people, but if you go and do that, at the end of the day, you're gonna just feel like, I love God more because of this. It's going to take work, though. It's going to take patience and grace and listening, setting aside your preferences and who you like to hang out with, what, what, you'll, what you have in common with others. It's, it's getting away from all of that. So how about getting to know one another without any apparent affinity that we have with one another? I, I like to do matchmaking, you know, not just, you know, for people to, to uh, date one another and hopefully get married, but I've done a lot of that here. I want you to know that. <laughs> but when I meet someone new on the plaza, you know, I'll say, hey, where do you live? And they'll say, oh, I, I live in North Torrance. And I'll say, oh, and I pull the Paredes family, hey, these guys live in North Torrance too. And, and they have something in common. What, where do you work? Oh, I'm an engineer. Oh, we got... Everyone shows up, I think. And, uh, um, 
It, but it's, I, I love to do that. But I'll tell you what, there's something beautiful about when there's someone who's different than someone else and you, you interact with together. There is a depth of the love of God that, you, that grows within you. And I think we do a good job, but I'm asking for more. I think the shared love of Jesus creates community and shared community deepens our love for God. And it's not an easy thing. We've got to move beyond saying, hey, we should get together, but do it. And I'll tell you, with some of you, my encouragement to you is, would you stay for plaza time today? Or how about, you always go to plaza time, but you always hang out with the same people. I understand that. Um, would you talk to someone different during plaza time? Would you go to a Nova class for the first time? Would you, would you join a small group would you go feed the hungry with us every, on the second and fourth Fridays in North Gardena? Would you, would you go to Laundry Love on the, on the fourth Saturday from 245, laundromat by Rascals down on Torrance Boulevard? Would you build a house with us? Because it'll deepen your love for God. Number one, what's central to the gospel is, number one, it's the fellowship of a new hope. The second thing that we can pull out of the scripture is the confidence of a new hope. Are you confident in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Look at Peter's confidence in verse 7 of our text. When the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord, and as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. See, when you have this new hope, it's, there's a surprising forwardness and a assertiveness that shows itself. And, and what, I, what I love about uh, John chapter 21 is there's an almost identical situation in Luke chapter 5. And we'll put it up here on the screen, but we're not going to read it. But I want you to just kind of look at it, and maybe you can sort of, if you've read it before, you say, okay, I, I remember that. And what it is is John chapter 21 and Luke chapter 5 are almost identical incidents that happen. So let's compare the similarities between John chapter 21 and Luke chapter 5. It's a similar setting. The disciples are in a boat. Similar setting. Similar problem. The, they fish all night and catch nothing. They're in a boat, they fish all night, catch nothing. There's a similar intervention. Jesus says, throw your net in one more time, even though you've fished all night and you caught nothing. And then the result is a very similar result. After throwing their nets in one more time, they get a big haul of fish. But there's contrasting responses from Peter here. Similar situation, similar results, similar setting, all of that. But there's a contrasting response. In Luke chapter 5, when Peter realizes what's happening, he looks at Jesus and he says, Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. You, you make me feel small. You make me feel weak. You make me feel powerless. You make me feel vulnerable. Get away from me, Jesus, Peter says. But in John chapter 21, when Peter realizes it's the Lord, what does he do? He puts on his coat and he jumps in the water, right? Can't get to Jesus fast enough. It's the same setting. It's the same problem, same intervention, same result, but a different response from Peter. Now, why is it? Why does Peter have a different response in virtually the same setting? In John chapter 21, Peter has seen and he has experienced and he understands the new hope in the resurrected Jesus. 
He sees Jesus for who he really is. Here's the point right here, or one of the two points we can make. If you ever come to grips with the real Jesus, you'll have an extreme reaction. You notice in either situation, Peter doesn't make any comments about the fish. I think that that's that's very interesting. They just haul haul in a bunch of fish, and he didn't say anything about the fish. In Luke chapter 5, there's a negative extreme reaction. And in John chapter 1, there's a positive extreme reaction. He's confident. He's strong. It's urgent. He needs to be near Jesus. And I I, I think it's interesting. I I was thinking, to illustrate this um, to you, some of you know that um, being a, a chaplain for the police department, they have given me a police uniform, a ceremonial, formal police uniform. And um, I look in the mirror and, uh, and I see myself when I put on the uniform and, um, and I feel like a law enforcement officer. I, I look in the mirror, these are the chaplain corps right here. See Ron Graff there and, and um, these are the other chaplains in the department. I put on my uniform, I look in the mirror, and I, I make sure everything's right, and I look good. <laughs> and I feel good. You want to know when I feel less like a police officer? I mean, I put this thing on, and I really look like a police officer. I mean, it's the same badge that the Torrance police officers wear. It's the the same uniform, a class A uniform. I feel the least like a police officer when I'm wearing my uniform and I'm around a real police officer. And, uh, And I put that on and I'm speaking at events and there's other police officers around and I get afraid. Is my badge on crooked? How's my tie bar? Because that thing always moves around. Um, Is it pressed just right? Am I standing with my gut in enough? (laughs) In fact, I don't know how to stand with that. And if you ever see a police officer and they're out in the field, they know how to stand with their uniform on. And I had to learn how to stand with that uniform on. What's worse is sometimes I'm at a formal event and um, the flag comes by and we're to salute and I'll have my head covering on, I'll have my hat on and I don't know how to salute. I'd never, no one, I mean I have learned to salute but I'm always, I'll tell you what I do honestly, when I know that we're gonna salute, I'll get an email, can you speak at this event, it's a formal event and then I'll email back, I'll, I'll reply back, do we have to salute? I do that every time. Because if we have to, that means I'm wearing my hat, I'm a head covering, and I stand in the mirror and I practice saluting. Because I don't really, it doesn't come natural to me. And so when I'm around a police officer, I feel less like a police officer with my police uniform on. Why? Because I'm not a police officer. I just look like one with that. Only a real police officer would sort of out me as a fraud. Because he knows. We all want to be our own boss, our own savior. We all want to be confident in who we are. And when we get around the real almighty God of the Bible, 
it can be very threatening. And we would say, I almost feel like, depart from me, police officer, because I really want to feel like a police officer all by myself, you see? Because you make me feel like a fraud when I'm around you, because I really am. You see, the second point we can make here is the reason that Peter, in John chapter 21, was able to move toward Jesus because he understood the gospel. The determining factor in my relationship with the Father is not my goodness, but it's Jesus' love for me. And, and we see it in baptism. When, when we do baptisms here, these, these people, we, we ask them to tell their story and we, 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 we take a video of their, of their story and they're confident in saying, you know, I believe in Jesus. And then we get them in the water and I say to them, do you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? In a very bold statement. And they boldly say back, yes, I do. And then we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a very bold, confident time. You see, when you interact with the risen Savior, when the central message of the gospel is, it's all about the fellowship of a new hope, and it's all about the confidence, number two, the confidence of a new hope, and the last is this. Let's take a look at this. It's the redemption of a new hope. The great irony of Peter is that Peter was so proud, and yet just before we read that he denied Jesus three times, and yet he's so proud. Last Sunday, if you watched the strange, kind of weird musical Jesus Christ Superstar live on NBC on Easter evening, that, that uh, rock opera was not intended to be a truthful interpretation of the gospel account. But there's a very poignant scene about Peter's denials. And as soon as Peter denies Jesus three times, he encounters others that were around him and Mary and Mary interacts, talks with him. And I thought it was, uh, it was actually a very, very nice part of that strange rock opera. Take a look at this. I think I've seen you somewhere I remember You were with that man That took away I recognize your face You've got the wrong man He swore three times that he wouldn't deny Jesus. Peter thought that he would be the, Peter thought he'd be the greatest leader, the greatest team leader 
because he was better and he would perform better than anyone else. And as it turned out, he was just like everyone else and he performed the worst. See, the message of the new hope is this. There is redemption. God accepts you for who you are. You are not judged by your performance or how good you are. If we were judged in that way, we would be doomed. But the message of the new hope is your past could be wiped out clean no matter what. And in John chapter 21, we see that Peter comes, Jesus comes to restore Peter. And Jesus can forgive you and restore you. If you're willing to repent, Jesus will restore you. You see, Jesus wants Peter to take responsibility. And we, and we read this here. It's, it's an emotional and painful scene to see. But where did Peter deny Jesus? It was around a campfire. And so when Peter dives into the water and gets to Jesus on the beach, what does he encounter? A campfire. In verse 9, it says, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times, right? And in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, how many times did Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? Three times. This is the first step in restoration and redemption. It's taking responsibility. There's no shifting the blame on someone or, or something else. There's no complaining. There's no devaluing of the offense. Oh, I didn't really deny him that much. But Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him a third time, but he still took responsibility for his offense. The second thing we see here is that Peter relies on the grace of God. Notice that Jesus never brings up Peter's denials. Jesus didn't say, Peter, are you ever going to deny me again? Jesus doesn't say, Peter, do you finally see that you didn't love me? Jesus asks Peter this question. Do you love me more? Do you love me supremely, Peter, more than these? And so what is Jesus referring to when he says more than these? Who, who or what are the these? See, Jesus is getting to the root cause of the denials and the root cause of every sin that we ever commit. So what is the root cause? The root cause is putting ourselves in the center of our lives instead of putting God in the center of our lives. When we put ourselves at the center of our lives, we think we can do whatever we want to do. And so we'll lie and we'll, we're justified because we're in the center of our lives. We'll cheat because we're justified. We're in the center of our lives. It's all about us. We'll steal, we'll gossip, we'll hate, we'll sin. And we're justified because we're at the center of our lives. And that's the root cause of every sin is putting ourselves at the center of our lives. And when Peter says, you know that I love you, he's wholly relying He's putting all of his weight on the grace of God. You see, a new hope, a new hope begins with encountering the risen Savior. And we see that our world is searching for a new hope. And so our world comes together and marches and protests with a collective voice screaming out for justice 
and for equality. Our, our world comes together searching for a new hope and, and they're thinking it's gotta be living longer through nutrition or fitness or medical technology. Our world wants new hope through hoping for transformational political leadership somewhere in Capitol Hill or local government or, or state government. We gotta find a new hope somewhere. Or maybe smart, smarter financial investments or maybe we're just gonna live life to the fullest. We're gonna travel and we're gonna seek adventure because YOLO, right? Today we explore the central message of the gospel, the very last chapter in the Gospel of John. It's all about the fellowship of a new hope and it's about the confidence of a new hope and it's about the redemption of a new hope. We're on this great journey of, of looking at the scriptures right after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And we'll continue on with this next week. Let's all stand for the benediction.